Well, good morning. Um, as Keith said, my name is Brad Julin, um, and um, I realize that you already have a Pastor Brad, so that, that may be a little confusing for you. Uh, actually, Brad, I should tell you it's even worse than you think. Would you like to know why? Because um, <clears throat> if I really wanted to confuse you, I would tell you that uh, my parents named me after my great-uncle, who was a rancher and cowboy in Hawaii. And uh, my uncle's name was Bradford Sumner. No relation, I don't think, but no kidding. Uh, so maybe we can call him Brad Sumner and call me Brad Sr. Um, today is the uh, concluding message in the uh, series on the genius of generosity. And as you know, um, the reason for this series is uh, because one of the core values of this church is a generous lifestyle. And um, the, the core value says, we commit to living as faithful stewards, willing to share cheerfully what we have with others. Willing to share cheerfully what we have with others. We listen to and depend on God in every circumstance with a humble, gratitude, humble spirit of gratitude. Generosity touches all aspects of our lives, our friendships, our service, our time, our gifts and abilities, and our material resources. So this series is a challenge to live out the King's call on our lives. To reflect His generosity to us by being generous to others. We know what is supposed to motivate generosity. It's, his, it's gratitude, isn't it? Because He has been generous to us, uh, Jesus probably said it best when He said, uh, freely you have received, freely give. Well, so far so good. Unfortunately, knowing what we should do and actually doing it are two very different things. Have you ever noticed that in your life? And so at this point of crossing the bridge from knowledge to action... It's at that point that many of us resort to trying to do the best we can, trying to be generous, and then maybe asking God to help us do that. But I want to suggest to you this morning that that is not really God's plan for us. Would you join me as we pray? Lord, we need you to give us ears to hear, hearts to believe and obey the things that you want to say to us. And so, Lord, we do not need to hear what Brad Julin has to say. We need to hear what you are trying to say through your Holy Spirit. So come teach us, Lord, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know if you brought your Bible with you this morning, but if you did, please open it to Matthew chapter 5. Because uh, this morning... Uh, I am going to do, survey a number of major passages, actually familiar passages in Scripture, but I am hoping to help you see it in a new light this morning. I want to begin in Matthew chapter 5 on that hill in northern Galilee, um, by the Sea of Galilee, where Jesus is preaching what we usually, usually call the Sermon on the Mount. And He's preaching to a Jewish crowd that is steeped in keeping the law, in trying to be good. 
And let's look at what he says. Um, look at uh, Matthew chapter 5 and, and verse 17. Matthew 5, verse 17. He says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Okay, first thing is, is that Jesus says, I, I haven't come to abolish the law, I've come to establish it. And then, in verse 20, He really puts the hook in. He says in verse 20, For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, friends, I think you probably know that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, these guys were really good at trying to be good. And Jesus says, ain't good enough. You've got to do better than they do. And so... Then Jesus begins to explain what he means. So look at what happens immediately in verse 21. He quotes the law. He says, you know, you've heard it said in the law, thou shalt not kill. And then he basically says, but I say to you, if you get angry enough with your brother to say, raka, that's you empty head, you're guilty of the hellfires. You are Worthy of being punished with hellfire. I'm going, huh? Whoa, wait a minute. And then he goes on to the next one. He starts talking about uh, adultery. You've heard it said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman with lust in his heart has already committed adultery. Oh, shoot. Oh, boy. What is Jesus doing here? He keeps going. He talks about uh, divorce. He talks about oaths. Uh, down in verse 38, he quotes about uh, the, the Old Testament says, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you that do not resist an evil person. If he strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other. He is talking about a righteousness and an obedience that goes far beyond external behavior, that it goes right to, the, to your heart. And then he talks about uh, verse 43. You've heard it said, love your, enemy, uh, love your neighbor. Everybody's going, yeah, we should love our neighbors. We should be nice to our neighbors. He says, I say to you, don't just love your neighbors. Love your enemies. Ugh. Oh, man, this is bad. And then he starts talking about, in chapter 6, about your generosity. Oh, wait a minute. He says, don't do acts of righteousness uh, so people will see how wonderful you are. Do it in secret. And then he talks about uh, prayer and how people, when they pray, they tend to pray like the hypocrites do, standing on the street corners going, Oh, dear God. Have you ever heard anybody pray like that? Oh, dear God. Because they want to look spiritual for everybody. And then he talks about fasting and doing fasting and looking like you've gone through so much suffering for Jesus. Question, what is Jesus doing here? Go ahead. Yeah, there we go. What is Jesus doing here? Okay, now, this is the part where you answer me. Okay, I've been doing all the talking. Now I want you to answer me. What is Jesus doing here? Dustin, we need a little um, Jeopardy music in the background. Do 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 do
okay, sorry. What is Jesus doing here, friends? He's setting the bar so that he can answer his own question. Okay, yeah, I agree with that. Okay, I'm not looking for a deep answer. What is he doing? Pointing out how hopeless we are. Yes, he is pointing. In fact, we don't even get how hopeless he is trying to say we are. And that is actually the point of the sermon this morning. What is he doing? What is he quoting? The law. Friends, Jesus is preaching the law to people. Now you should be going, huh? Now wait a minute, I thought Jesus came to preach the good news. Why is Jesus preaching the law? This should really confuse you. Why is Jesus preaching the law? Okay, I hear an answer. Wait a minute. What? Sin leads to death? Yes. Sure does. Okay, if you break the law, you're sin. Yes. And sin leads to death? Yes. This is what God requires of us? Okay. I think the way I would say it, friends, is the reason he is preaching to the law is because they have not listened to what the law is teaching. He is, remember, he told us what he's doing. He is establishing the law. They still think that if they try hard enough to keep the law, God will be pleased with them. To say it in another way, the law has not yet done its work in their lives. And I want to suggest to you that for many of us, the law hasn't done its work in our lives yet either. So, then we've got to ask the question, well, what's the purpose of the law? Why did God give the law? I don't know. What do you think? Why did God give the law, friends? Do you know? I was thinking that too. So we could be closer to Him. Okay. Um, I hope you won't be offended if I say no. But that is what a lot of people think. Why did God give the law, friends? Do you know? Galatians tells us that the law was given as a tutor to lead us to Christ. That it was to shut us up in sin. It was to make us realize we could, be, we could never be good enough to keep it. And so the Jews, who were doing their best to keep it, Jesus preaches the law to them to say, wait a minute, it goes beyond this external not sleeping with your neighbor's wife. It goes to your very heart and lusting after her already. You can never, you can never be totally righteous. Does that make sense? So friends, let's go back to the original question. 
What is Jesus doing here? And I'll tell you what my answer is. My answer is is that Jesus is preaching the bad news. He is preaching the bad news. And the reason why He is doing that is this. Because the good news is only good because of the bad news that precedes it. I don't think you can see the picture. The guy's got his hands on his head and he's got all these bills he can't pay. The good news is only good because of the bad news that precedes it. You know, if you're sitting in a hot tub and you are just enjoying yourself there and I come along and I say, hey, I've got a life preserver, I can save you! What's your reaction? Get out of here! If you fall off the ferry between here and Victoria and I come along and say, can I save you? What's your reaction? Good news. Good news. If you're Bill Gates and I say, hey, Bill, you've just won the lottery. What's your reaction? Yeah. But if you are out of work and about to lose your house and you win the lottery, right? See, friends, the good news is only good because of the bad news that precedes it. That's why we don't sing, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a moderately good person like me. The good news is only good because of the bad news that precedes it. If you have been a follower of Jesus, you know all of that probably already. So this may sound like a strange question. But I'm asking it for a reason this morning. Has the law truly done its work in your life? Have you truly understood and believed how bad the bad news really is? My answer is that most of us as good evangelical Christians do not. We know we need a Savior. But we think that grace is mostly about having our sins forgiven. And I want to suggest to you this morning that if that's all you think it is, you're missing out. Most of us do not understand how bad the bad news really is. And so we need to ask the next logical question. What is, what is the good news? What is it? Okay, now you got to answer. This is your part. What is the good news? I must have you scared already, right? Come on, what's the good news, friends? We're not alienated from God anymore. All right, good. What's the good news? You think I'm asking you a Sunday school question. I'm not. I'm asking you a very serious question. What is the good news, friends? Somebody said something. There is forgiveness in Him. Yes. That's that's pretty good news, isn't it? Okay, I'm going to just stretch your minds a little bit. It is good news. But Jesus forgiving your sins 
is it's only moderately good news. It's only moderately good news because we have not believed and understood the bad news, friends. Um, the problem is not just that we are guilty and we need forgiveness. The problem is that we are also dead. We don't just need forgiveness. We need life. We need life, friends. The bad news is not just that we're guilty. The bad news is that we lack the power to obey God. Romans describes us as spiritually dead. Functionally, that means that the old sin nature controls us. We do not have a heart to obey God. And as Jesus was trying to make clear in the Sermon on the Mount, not only are we unable to be good enough, Even when we do good things, spiritual things like praying and fasting and giving to the poor, we end up twisting it into being something about us and how wonderful we are and how spiritual we are. It becomes a self-centered activity that is about others seeing how spiritual and wonderful we are, not about truly our love for God and our love for other people. And this is exactly the problem when we start talking in church about being generous. We all know we should be generous. We can make up our minds to be more generous with our money, with our time, with our spiritual gifts and talents. But trying our hardest to be good does not, hear me friends, does not produce the fruit that God desires. By trying our hardest to be good, friends, the flesh, the sin nature cannot reform the flesh. Christianity is not a self-help organization where we each encourage one another to pull ourselves up morally by our bootstraps. When we attempt to do so, we always end up with a cheap imitation of the real thing. The good news is that Jesus not only died to cleanse me from sin, He also rose from the dead to give me His life through the Holy Spirit. The really bad news is that we don't just need to be saved from sin's penalty, we also need to be saved from sin's power. We don't just need to be justified or made right with God, we also need to be continually sanctified and transformed by His indwelling life. I want you to turn to the book of Romans with me for a minute. Because, friends, faith is required in the Christian life in order to be saved from beginning to end. The central thesis of the book of Romans is presented uh, right in chapter 1 in verses 16 and 17. Here's what it says. It says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Okay, here's the, here's the good news, the gospel message. I'm not ashamed of the good news. Because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first the Jew and then the Gentile. For in the gospel, 
Look at this phrase. A righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Faith is required. Let me underline this. The gospel or good news is about righteousness that comes through faith from beginning to end. Trusting is a necessary component of all righteousness in our lives. Not just having your sins forgiven, but living a life of righteousness today. Living a life of generosity today. So how does that work? Well, Paul, now he's given his central thesis in chapter 1, and the next four chapters are all about having your sins forgiven. And we're all going, yeah, I get that. That's great. I need to have my sins forgiven. I'm a sinner. I understand the bad news. And then Paul gets to his pivot point in Romans, and it comes in chapter 5, verse 10. Look at chapter 5, verse 10. Here's what it says. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to Him through the death of His Son. That's what the first five chapters are about. If that's true, he says, then how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through His life? Notice the different tense of the verbs. We were. That's past tense, reconciled through Christ's death. But then he says, we shall be, future tense, saved through his life. Friends, many of us as Christians don't understand that we have both been saved and we still need to be saved every day. And both are by faith. Not just faith in Christ's death for the forgiveness of your sins, but faith in Him living in you to set you free from the power of sin. Righteousness is by faith from first to last. And the next couple of chapters in Romans are all about God's life in you, setting you free from being controlled by the old sin nature. Faith is just as necessary for being saved from the power of sin in your life today as it was the day you trusted in Christ to save you. Can I ask you a question? I don't know how well you know your Bibles. You know that chapter seven, Romans chapter 7 where Paul starts talking about the good that I want to do, I don't do. Oh, wretched man that I am. I always do the wrong thing. You know the passage I'm talking about? Romans chapter 7. Okay, this is the part where you all nod your heads and go, yes, Pastor Brad, I know which verses you're talking about. I have heard that passage massacred so many times. Can I say throw? I want to throw up. Can I say that in church? Okay, I want to throw up. Because we present that, you know what we present that as? The normal Christian life. Can I say something to you? Hogwash. That ain't it. You know what Paul is talking about there? He is talking about trying to keep the law as a Christian. He's talking about trying to be good as a Christian. Making up your mind, I'm going to do it, and I end up doing the wrong thing. And then he goes into chapter 8, but thanks be to God, because it comes through 
the spirit of life because the spirit of life sets me free from the law of sin and death that used to control me, my old fleshly nature. Many Christians tend to think of Christianity as God giving us a clean slate and then saying, okay, now you be good. I forgave you. Now you better be good. That is not Christianity, friends. It is not. It is not God forgiving us and then preaching the law to us. It is not mostly up to us to be good. If that is what you think, that it's up to you to be good, Please stop. Please. Stop trying to be generous. Sorry, Brad. God is not trying to help your sin nature be better. His solution is not to reform the flesh. It is to kill it. And give you new life. Well, you want to see how this works out in church? Turn to the book of Galatians. I told you we were going to cover a lot of the Bible today. Galatians chapter 1. Galatians chapter 1. Turn there. Because in Galatians chapter 1, Paul first gives a greeting. And then then as soon as he finishes the greeting, in verse 6, he says this. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Oh, shoot. Which is really no gospel at all. You've turned to a different message of good news, and it's not even really good news, he says. And then, from uh, chapter 1, verse 11, through the end of the chapter... He begins talking about his authority as a messenger of the good news. And in the rest of the chapter, he talks about how he received the message of the good news by direct revelation from God. And in the first half of chapter 2, he talks about how his message was approved and appreciated by the other apostles. So he has apostolic authority. And then in the second half of chapter 2, he talks about how even Peter, the apostle Peter began to slip back into this old trying-to-be-good-for-God thing, back into legalism, and he says, I had to confront him. So now we come to chapter 3, verse 1, and here is where he gets into the specifics of how they are distorting the gospel. Look at chapter 3, verse 1, book of Galatians. He says to them, you foolish Galatians. I always like that when somebody starts out talking to me about how foolish I am. You foolish Galatians. Who has tricked you, bewitched you, he says. Before your eyes, Jesus was clearly portrayed as crucified. So I want to learn just one thing. Okay, he says, okay, let's come down to the core core issue here. I want to learn one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by observing the law or by believing what you heard? So let's ask that question, friends. Did you get the Spirit Because God looked down and He said, oh, that Altison, he is such a nice guy. He is so committed. He is such a good guy. I think I'm going to give him my spirit. Is that how it worked, Al? You mean none of us get the Holy Spirit because we're so committed and so dedicated? It's 
because we believe what we heard. Well, then he says, okay. If that's how you got the Spirit, are you, he says it again, so foolish, we could say stupid. After beginning with the Spirit, are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? By trying to be good, by trying to be generous. He says, have you suffered so much for nothing if it really was for nothing? Does God, here's, he follows up, he gives basically the same question in another way. Does God give you His Spirit and work miracles among you because you observe the law, because you're so committed and you're trying to be good, or because you believe what you heard? What have we heard? (laughs) Well, what we've heard is what Paul says in Galatians 2.20. By the way, if you need a memory verse for this week, Galatians 2.20. If you have never memorized Galatians 2.20, please memorize it. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. Yes, it's no longer me living. My faith today is that Jesus died for my sins in the past, but today He's living in me and I'm trusting Him to live in me and to transform even me by His power, by His life. Friends, the work of the Spirit in your life is not by trying harder, it is by trusting fully. Do you get it? Lord, now you're living in me. I am trusting you to give me that heart of obedience, that generous heart. Lord, you need to change this hard heart of mine. Can I ask you a question? What does trying to be good produce? Often, guilt, self-righteousness. Friends, have you ever been to a church where, you know, people are kind of noses in the air? Friends, legalism only produces one of two things. Self-effort only produces one of two things. It either produces self-righteousness and pride because you think you're living up to God's standards, or living better than other people, or it produces guilt and condemnation. Oh, and by the way, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, because the law of the Spirit of life sets us free from the law of sin and death. You know, in 1 Corinthians 3, the church at Corinth was divided, they were quarreling, they were committed Christians in a very difficult city, trying to live for God, trying to get along with one another, and they were failing miserably. And Paul says to them in chapter 3, he says, you know, this quarreling, it's just a sign that you're not living by the power of the Spirit, but by the power of your sin nature. And then he asks them a great question. 
Want to know what the question is? Look at this. Are you not acting like mere men? They were trying their human best to be good Christians. And Paul says to them, you guys are acting like people. The implication is that we as believers are not supposed to be acting like mere humans. The implication is that our love for one another, our generosity, our holiness should not be explainable by human effort, but only by the miraculous power of God. And when I look around and I see churches quarreling and divided, it's not usually evil people stirring up problems. It is Christians trying their human best to get along with one another. Um, okay. Do you want to know the really bad news for Jericho Ridge Community Church? The really bad news? The really bad news is if you all commit yourselves 100% to serving God, to being more loving, to being more generous, I guarantee you will find a way to mess it all up. Self-effort will end up twisting even prayer and Bible study and generous service into acts of pride and self-centeredness. Have you ever done something nice and sacrificial for somebody? Come on, have you? Or maybe for the church and nobody noticed? Or even worse... They criticize what you did. My wife, uh, I think I have to be careful about how I tell this story. So, uh, My wife and certain other people went to great effort to make a special amount of food and preserve it for a certain person. And the person was not happy with it and informed them that he was feeding it to his dog. Do you think that got a happy response? But you know what, friends? How we respond to that tells us a lot about what is motivating us. It tells us a lot about who we are doing it for. Okay, by now you're probably saying, okay, enough with the bad news. If the good news is really good, how does one live by the power of the Spirit and not by human effort? Well, I'm glad you asked that question because the answer is both counterintuitive and countercultural. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Paul in this chapter is defending his apostleship. There were people in the church criticizing him, and in a somewhat mocking tone at the beginning of chapter 12, he talks about himself in the third person, telling about this event where he received a revelation from God that was so great that humans are not allowed to speak about it. And then we come to verse 7. Listen to what it says. To keep me from becoming conceited... Oh, that's not a problem for any of you, is it? Just checking. There was, because of the surpassingly great revelations, he's saying, you know, I could have been 
well, I guess I'm super special because God allowed me to see all this stuff. He says, in order to keep me from becoming conceited because of these revelations, there was given me what? A thorn in the flesh. And then he really blows our minds. Want a mystery? A messenger from Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. He said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Paul says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest on me. And that's why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weakness, in insults, in hardship, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. We don't need to get into speculation about what the thorn in the flesh was. The point of the passage is not the nature of the affliction. It is what it did to him. And what it did to him was it weakened him. It weakened him. I suspect that the evil one intended to weaken and discourage Paul through it. And Paul clearly felt that it hindered his ministry. I wonder how many of us at certain times in our lives have thought, God, there is this problem in my life. Now, you fill in the blank. I have this health issue, or I have this job pressure, or I have this financial problem, or I have this marriage trouble, or I have to care for this aging parent, or this troubled child. You fill in the blank. God, there is this problem. And if you would just fix this problem, I could serve you much better. Have you ever had that discussion with God? Am I the only one? Isn't it funny how much help God needs from us on knowing what He should do to make us more effective for Him? Paul prayed this three different times, and then comes the shock. God answers Paul, but not in the way Paul hoped or expected. Remember, this is an apostle who saw God heal many, many people through him. In Acts 19, sorry, yeah, in Acts 19 when he was at Ephesus, it says God did extraordinary miracles through Paul so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick and their illnesses were cured and evil spirits left them. Of all people, surely Paul could ask God to heal him and he would receive it. But God says no. No, he says, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. This is a principle few in the church teach, friends. This is the paradox of power. Because Paul says, when I am weak, that's when I'm really strong. And one of the myths I would say the failures of the Western churches is our emphasis on what we do for God and looking for our strengths to do it. We think God is looking for our strengths and abilities when in reality He is looking for our weakness and dependence on Him. We do not believe Jesus' words in John 15, I am the vine, you are the branches, apart from me you can do nothing. Zip. Zero. See, we don't believe that. What do you mean, nothing, Lord? I I can witness for you. I can teach for you. I can serve. I can pray. I could even preach for you. Yes, 
and your fleshly witness and service will get twisted into something that is all about how spiritual you are, or about your need to be in control, or about your need to be significant and accepted. It will accomplish nothing for the kingdom. It will all be wood, hay, and stubble that burns up in the end. That's scary stuff, friends. And so Paul understood what God was trying to say to him. And he says, okay, God, instead of trying to be strong for you, he says, I am going to gladly boast in my weakness so that the power of Christ might rest on me. Do you want the power of Christ to rest on your life? Do you want people to see Christ in you? Do you want to see a love for people that you cannot humanly love? Do you want peace in situations that, humanly speaking, there's nothing to be peaceful about? Do you want your life to reflect the generosity of God by being generous to others? Then please stop trying to be strong for God and begin to change the way you pray in every situation. Learn to boast in your weakness that the power of Christ might rest on you. I'm not trying to give you a formula here, friends. What I'm trying to say is, as we acknowledge our complete inability to be good, to be loving, to even pray in our own ability, when we boast in our weakness, that's when God can come and fill us with His Spirit and empower us. Boast to the Lord about your superficiality and hardness of heart. Ask Him to save you from pursuing your own will. Boast to the Lord about your pride that makes you think that you know better what other, other, what's best for other people and for this church. Boast to the Lord about how you really desire to please yourself and be self-indulgent rather than generous to others. And ask Him to come and be your life. Lord, it's no longer me living, it's you living in me. And this life that I now live in the flesh, I'm living by faith in you to be my love, to be my generosity, to take me deeper, to transform me so that people see you in me. Boast in the Lord about your struggles with sexual desires and ask Him to be your purity of thought and action. Boast to the Lord about your weakness so that the power of Christ might rest on you. I want to wrap this up. Why would God do this? Why would God set it up this way? Well, the answer, I think, is found in 2 Corinthians 4, verses 7 through 11. Paul says that God has put this treasure in jars of clay, meaning unremarkable containers, weak, frail, even sinful containers, and He did it for a reason. He has put this treasure in jars of clay, to show that the all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. If our lives can be explained by human effort and dedication, we have probably failed in what God desires for us. The power to be Christ-like does not come from your effort and self-discipline. Mark my words, no one ever made themselves a man of God or a woman of God. And those who think that they have simply are deceived by their own religious pride. I don't just need Jesus to save me from sin's penalty. 
I need Him to save me from myself. I need Him to save the church from me. Yes, that was a pastor speaking. I am trusting Him to take this clay pot and cause His life to be revealed in me. And maybe, maybe even produce in me a generous lifestyle that attracts others to Him. And if that happens, that would truly be a miracle. Let's pray and the worship team is going to come. Lord, Lord, for many of us, uh, we know some of these truths, but we've struggled in applying it, Lord. And like Peter, we fall back into our old habits of uh, trying to be good and trying to do it in our own abilities and strengths. But Lord, this morning we come back to believe the bad news that we couldn't truly keep the law because we don't just need to be saved from the penalty, we need to be saved from this sin power that rules in our lives and that's why You rose from the dead. You live in us now and so, Lord, it's no longer us living, it's You living in us. And so this day, we choose to put our faith in You, to set us free from the things that have controlled us, the sin that has controlled us. And Lord, we're also trusting You to make our service Spirit-empowered so that it's about You, not about us, and that people see You in these weak jars of clay. Thanks, Lord, in Jesus' name.